Hello and welcome to Try Talking Sport, hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. You've come to the right place if you're looking for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and a little bit of entertainment. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, thanks for tuning in and being part of our adventure. Now this is a very special episode of the podcast because we are celebrating our first birthday. It's been an incredibly fast year since we released our first episode of the show featuring Caroline Heffernan on this day last year. A fast and fabulous year of chatting with some insanely inspirational people following their dreams and their passion for their chosen sport. I have absolutely loved bringing their stories to you and look forward to what the future holds over the coming months for the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in, subscribed and supported the show for the past year. There is no doubt it's been a peculiar few weeks with COVID-19 and I really do hope that you are not simply surviving but that you are in your own way thriving and making the most of whatever situation has crossed your path as we all in our own ways and lives battle the global pandemic. To brighten up even the darkest of days we have some prizes to give away on the podcast this week. To enter the draw all you have to do is post a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on the Try Talking Sport Facebook page before Sunday the 31st of May and you'll be entered into the draw to win a Try Talking Sport bobble beanie hat plus all the reviews will be entered in the draw to win an entry for the Wild Atlantic 500k Summer Virtual Challenge starting on June 1st, valued at €50. Euro. It's a cracking prize. Be sure to follow Try Talking Sport on Facebook as we have lots of prizes up for grabs this week to celebrate the podcast's first birthday, including race entries, some backballers. Yes, the dual-mounted foam rolling device is up for grabs, as well as a few surprises to be announced on the page. Plus, our live chats on Tuesday and Thursday nights are well worth tuning into. You never know what nugget of insight or information might help you with your training and motivation over the coming weeks. Speaking of training and motivation, I finally got set up on Zwift and I can honestly say after a couple of workouts and two races, I am officially addicted. I love it. And I'm only sorry I didn't get it set up earlier, but we still have a way to go before racing returns to the road. So I'm looking forward to getting stuck in and sweaty indoors. It's been great to see this week in Ireland that some level of sporting activity has resumed, albeit with many restrictions and requirements to ensure the safety of all involved. But with the move into the next phase of lockdown in Ireland, it does feel as if there is some light at the end of a very long tunnel. Unfortunately, I do think we will see more events and races affected by COVID-19 before the end of the year at home and abroad. And for the thousands of people signed up to the KBC Dublin Marathon this year, there was much disappointment at the almost expected announcement that this year's event would not go ahead. A difficult, albeit correct decision by the race organisers. And there's one thing for sure. The appetite for racing will be very, very high once we get the green light to go out and race again, whenever that may be. For this milestone birthday episode, I'm delighted to feature Galway's Gavin Hennigan the ultra-endurance adventurer who has turned his dark days and turmoil as a young man into a beacon of hope and a shining light. He has built a phenomenal reputation for himself in the world of extreme adventure sports. Gavin has adventured across all seven continents, climbing, running, walking, rowing and mountaineering, racing in some of the world's toughest conditions and races. He has completed some of the longest and toughest winter ultras in the world, the Lycee 663 Arctic Ultra, tagged as the toughest, windiest, coldest ultra foot race in the world. He also completed the Yukon Arctic Ultra 500km race where he placed second, with the third fastest time recorded at the time since its inception in 2003. 
He has also completed a solo crossing of the oldest and deepest lake in the world, 700 kilometres across the frozen Lake Baikal in Siberia in 2016. It took him 17 days. He then went on to become the fastest solo competitor in the history of the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, considered the world's toughest row, completing that challenge of 3,000 miles in 49 days, 11 hours and 37 minutes. Currently residing in Chamonix, he recently returned home as the winner of the Iditarod Invitational 500k foot race in Alaska and is now back at work as a commercial deep sea diver. I had the pleasure of interviewing Gavin back in 2016 on a number of occasions as part of our Try Talking Sport Mind Over Miles Roadshow. I was the first person to interview Gavin about his journey from the depths of darkness to the bright lights of his career in adventure sport. He stole the show in Galway on our first outing. You can check out that interview on YouTube and the link is also on the website www.trytalkingsport.com. With a strong sense of purpose and a passion for adventure that has seen him travel the world, his story is one that should help lift you up, motivate you and encourage you to believe that you can be anything and achieve anything you want in life. Regardless of what we're going through, there is always an opportunity to overcome adversity. Accepting our situations and adapting our strategies to control what we can control can help us become the very best version of ourselves. Enjoy. Gav, so glad to get you on the show. You are currently in transit between Chamonix and the UK to head back to work in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. How have things been? Great, yeah. Thanks, thanks for uh, getting in touch and getting me on the on the podcast. It's been a while since we chatted. Um, yeah, it's a bit crazy. Obviously, at the moment, things are are, are a bit nuts. Um, I've been living in Chamonix the last couple of years, and uh, it's been amazing. And uh, it's one of the outdoor capitals of the world. But the last uh, seven weeks have been on like strict lockdown there, um, and it was like much much stricter than Ireland um, and the UK. Uh, like we had this thing where we'd have to have a, a generation online form with a QR code and, you know, to sign in to that. And if you go outside, you can't be out for more than an hour. You can't be more than a kilometre outside a radius of your home. So it was it was pretty testing um, in that, you know, you've obviously got these mountains and stuff outdoors outside. And uh, um, so it was, it was a, t- a tough, uh, tough few weeks in that regard. But I was saved by a couple of things. I just got back from Alaska. Uh, I was doing the, I did our trail invitation over there, which was absolutely epic adventure we can get into, I suppose. But also I had Zwift, I had a, a kicker. I saw you trying to get one set up recently as well. So that saved me um, over the last uh, over the last while. But yeah, as you said, I'm on my way to work now. So I uh, drove over from uh, Chamonix during the week and then on my way to Aberdeen now. So I'm about to get tested in a couple of days and then head, head off uh, offshore, hopefully. You rose to stardom and fame, really. Um, when we, after we met in 2016 for the first time, when I interviewed you back in the Salt Hill Hotel, you were heading yeah. off to the Yukon Arctic. You then took on the Talisker Whiskey Challenge, uh, setting ocean records, Irish records, uh, world <sighs> records uh, in the t- Talisker Whiskey Challenge. But you've done so much more than that since we last spoke so bring us right back Gavin and tell us a little bit about uh, where this spirit of adventure and need for speed and uh, adrenaline has kind of come from jumping right back I mean you know you know some of the the backstory obviously from from the couple interviews we've done and obviously being from Galway and uh, I'm sure you have a few Galway listeners um but yeah like I I've got into all this adventure stuff um on the back of um my sort of my past which was was i uh, had trouble with alcohol and drugs uh when i was uh in my, in my late teens and early 20s and i ended up in rehab at 21 and you know really tough time had a, a suicide attempt couldn't uh, couldn't come to terms with the fact that i was gay 
you know, come from a broken home. Um, dad was never around, you know, there's no, no sort of positive role, male role model in my life. Um, you know, just sort of like a whole uh, um, recipe for disaster, really. Um, and yeah, I ended up, as I said, ended up in rehab um, after a really shaky few years. Uh, you know, didn't finish school, loads of, loads of stuff with that. But it was the kind of outdoors that really saved me in that I, um, after coming out of rehab a few months later, um, I started surfing in Hinch, like started going down, down to Hinch and, and started surfing. And that was really the sort of catalyst for um, everything that's happened to me over the years. That's a, a long time gone now, but it's, yeah, it's been a, a wild ride. I've managed to uh, not pick up a drink or a drug for uh, yeah, nearly, uh, it'll be 18 years this year, which is a long time. Um, and yeah, I've had this incredible adventure through 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 the surfing um, and then into snowboarding. And then I, I retrained and, and as a commercial diver when I went out to Australia when I was like 23. Um, and then I've been working offshore in oil and gas for, yeah, all those, all the, all the years up until now. And um, yeah, just doing all these uh, daft adventures that come to mind um, in between, you know. Where does that, um, I suppose, interest in the long endurance stuff come from, Gavin? Because you could have just done an Ironman or you could have just run an ultra marathon, but you're running extreme events and extreme adventures. And it's hard to pinpoint, to pick one to talk about because there's been so many achievements and you're not just doing them, you're actually doing very well at them. I mean, second in the Yukon Arctic, the ocean and world rowing records, the Talisker Whiskey on your own, Lake Baikal, Solo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like they're extreme adventures. Where is that coming from? Well, I, I do so well on them because barely anybody enters. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different, different story than uh, the, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> a bloody Zwift race on <laughs> thousands of people. Um, but yeah, no, I suppose like I, uh, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to really pinpoint exactly. I, I, I suppose I'm just, I don't really think too much about stuff. Like if I'm attracted to something, like I kind of just go for it, you know, and I don't really ask too many questions. Like if I just think that looks mad, I want to do it, I'll, I'll try and do it, you know. And that's kind of like, I suppose, like, uh, a lot of it comes from just the inspiration of like outdoors and stuff you know so when i first when i did the first kind of cold weather ultramarathon which is the likes one in 2015 in i was in, in the northwest territories i, I read a, an article it was like red bull and it was like 10 toughest races in the world and we've all seen them there's like a whole list of stuff like there might be like some extreme iron man in there you know uh, like the norseman and then you know the martin de Saab, which is the you know sort of the desert ultramarathon but like having spent a lot of time in the mountains and into all the sort of snow and stuff like that, I just really gravitated towards the cold weather stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, I just transitioned really from that. Like I had a bit of mountaineering experience and cold weather experience and, and I sort of used that to do that race. And then it just kind of one thing led to another from there, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, like again, it's, it's as I said, it's hard to, p- to pinpoint the exact um exact thing but i always just leave myself open to inspiration you know like i don't really know what I, what i'll be doing next uh you know but uh obviously it's, it's hard to plan things at the moment and um, but it's just all about inspiration and, and sort of being open to that you know being open to different experiences and we could go back and talk about the situation you were in in your in your teens and your early 20s but actually i'd prefer to focus on some of the positive stuff that's come out of that decision to actually start surfing in Lahinch because becoming a commercial diver is one of the most uh, dangerous jobs in the world um, so even making that decision to do that uh, ties back into a lot of the endurance stuff because some of that stuff that you do is self-supported and also quite dangerous. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah. So I mean, diving is 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 dangerous. Like it's risky, but like part of the appeal with diving and part of the appeal with like 
the extreme events is like mitigating those risks you know like people always kind of you know people who don't really know me personally um would just kind of assume that i'm some, some sort of like adrenaline junkie and reckless you know what i mean but like i'm not like i'm you know i'm very very safe in what i do and you know i think things through i don't just you know you know go out without <laughs> without sort of you know any sort of experience and any preparation you know <clears throat> a lot of the stuff i do um, there's a lot, a lot of talk that goes into it, and a lot of mitigation of of the risks, you know, and 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 that comes from diving. Like diving is, yeah, diving is a was a very, very, very dangerous, very high risk job in the early days. There was a lot of people killed, but nowadays it's very, very safe. It's probably the most heavily re- uh, regulated safety industry in the world, you know. So there's a lot, there's a lot there, like you know, and I've kind of transferred that into like all my adventures, you know, and, and sort of like trying to make things safe. You know that's kind of I suppose that's I suppose how I operate. You know, but that t- doesn't stop me from getting in some hairy situations. You know what I mean? Um, as you do when you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean, or you're you know walking across Alaska, like so. Um, yeah, it doesn't. But that's part of the buzz. Like it's, it's, it's you know it's going out there into the unknown and uh, taking on like a really big challenge, something that's like bigger than yourself. You know. So talk to me about your most recent um, challenge. We'll start there maybe and, and work a little bit back because you have yeah. uh, just come back from the Iditarod. I think is how you pronounce it. That's how you say it. Well done. Good first, good first pronunciation. It's a hard one. <laughs> I've been one. practicing all morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was really lucky. I got back actually back to France on like I think it was the twelfth of March, and we went lockdown like a few days later, like a week later. Um, so like I've been planning this um this race for since last year, and I've had like um I've had a couple of I've had a couple of tough tough years with endurance events. I got I've had a few um, stress fractures. And I've been, I've, I was unable to do a few different things. I really try to look after myself, uh, training wise, and not like it was the stress fractures that I had were all in training. So, anyways, uh, yeah. So I went to Alaska there in February, and I did the Iditarod Trail Invitational, which is this 500 kilometer long winter ultramarathon on the Iditarod Trail, which is this trail that goes from just outside Anchorage, the capital of, of Alaska, all the way to it actually goes all the way to Nome and the Bering Sea, which is like a full thousand miles. Um, but I did the 350 mile version, the short version, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, that was on foot, and I had uh, a sled with me with all my survival gear in it, and it was like very much like the Yukon and the Likes race, absolutely incredible adventure. It took me six and a half days, and I actually ended up winning the thing, um, which was which was which was cool. Um, but it was more about trying to finish in one piece, really, which which I managed to do. But yeah, it was actually a crazy, crazy adventure. There was a lot of a lot of wildlife out there, a lot of uh, big angry moose um, on the trail. I saw um, a lynx um, out there. Bison uh, had like lots of wolf tracks. Yeah, it was just uh, absolutely uh, epic adventure, really. So, how do you mitigate against the moose uh, risks when you're taking well, on the Iditarod? So yeah, the problem this year, like I didn't really know moose, you know, were were such a problem, but the, they had a lot of snow this year, so the actual trail goes through the forest and over lakes and onto rivers and stuff like that it, it uh, was, was lost snow this year um so the snow is really deep and the and the moose um in the winter have a, have a tough time as it is getting food they're very very big animals i mean they could be like you know sort of eight feet ten feet tall and like you know they weigh like you know six eight hundred kilos more even because they're so heavy like they they post hole down into the snow and what happens is it's obviously it's harder for them to travel in the deep snow so they get onto the trail the trail is quite hard packed and they um they walk on the trail and of course you could be walking and running along and then they come across a moose and a lot of the time they don't move they just kind of get a bit um wary of you and they look at you and then you have to just wait for them to move so i got stuck a couple of times like i saw them up ahead and i stopped and waited for them to move and it wasn't too bad but two of the other racers one guy actually got properly trampled by one like uh ran him over 
And then another guy got his bike actually broken. Like he had to jump, jumped off his bike and, and jumped up a tree and the moose um, uh, trampled on his uh, derailleur and broke his bike. So yeah, it's uh, turned out to be pretty high risk actually with the, with the moose. So yeah, he had to be pretty on, uh, pretty, uh, you know, you couldn't be going, on, going around with like music on and stuff. You had to be pretty, uh, you know, aware of the surroundings most of the time when you're out there. But that must have been fairly difficult in terms of like sleep deprivation and how you managed your, I suppose, your energy and your focus to stay going for the six and a half days. In six and a half days, I think I had about, uh, I think I averaged about less than two hours sleep a day. So it was probably an hour. I think I worked out an hour and 45 minutes sleep a day. And you know, that was different. Like I didn't sleep for the first kind of 48 hours, close to 48 hours. And then I, yes, slept like along the way in different checkpoints. So yeah, like after about three days, I was, you know, very, very sleep deprived. And I was seeing a lot of different things in the snow. And uh, yeah, it was tough going, you know, like uh, you, you were definitely making out lots of shapes with the trees and snow on the trees and stuff like that. So there was a couple of times where I really had to fight through and uh, try and stay with it, you know, because you're sort of really starting to feel like you're losing it a bit you know and how do you even prepare for a race like that Gavin because not only have you to prepare your mind uh, and and body for it but also your equipment and the effort that it would take to to be on the snow and the sleep and everything that goes with it I mean it's completely out of the norm of what any of us as endurance athletes would be used to yeah like I mean it gets into some pretty crazy headspace obviously when you get into something that goes on for days and days like I've kind of like I don't do any really like specific like sleep deprivation trainer and like that I just kind of you know I've done it I have a bit of experience in the past you know so I kind of rely on that because I think that like you know getting into like doing sort of like sleep depression training really just takes too much out of you like I think it'll you know you've kind of you're putting yourself into the red too much you know and, and likewise you know a race that's like 500 kilometers long you know it's very hard to like really prepare for that in the same way that you'd prefer for like a marathon like if you're doing a marathon like or you know an Ironman or something you're going to test out the distances you know up to a point but you know you're not going to you mightn't put the whole thing together and you can't really do that with the length of the race that you did or odd so a lot of it is unknown you know and I am relying a bit on experience but that's part of the attraction you know is that you are in some way you're not fully prepared and that's the that's the risk and that's the gamble that you're taking with yourself and that's that to me that's interesting because I think you know when people do um training for stuff there's a lot of like control with stuff and they feel like they've got they have everything under control and that they have everything planned out they've all their nutrition planned out and everything's like you know all their uh, their eyes are, are dotted and their t's are crossed but like you, that all goes out the window when you do something like the Iditarod and that all goes out the window for a lot of people when they do an Ironman or when they do something very long, you know, and it's how you react in those situations. How do you adapt in the moment? Um, you know, when you don't, when you can't stick to an exact plan um, and that's the real test, you know, um, and that's why stuff like the Iditarod is really interesting to me. Um, and this particular race is, is one I'm probably going to go back to next year because they actually don't have any compulsory gear. Like there's no like safety checks or anything like that. It's you, you decide for yourself because you get vetted before you go there. They call it an invitational because you get invited to go and you have to have like a CV of stuff. You know, you're making decisions for yourself. And that's really, really important for me. Like in the adventures that I do is that like, it's all about decision making everything, you know, and, and it might sound really, really simple, you know, but it all comes down to, you know, uh, the decisions you make impact what happens to you during the race and, and, and whether or not you're going to get an outcome or, or not. And, and um, and it's the same thing for anyone doing any sort of race. You know, um, it's all about decision making. But how can you even make decisions when you're sleep deprived five, five, six days into a race? Or is that part of the whole process of it as well? 
that's part of it because that's the test, isn't it? Can you make those decisions under extreme duress? You know, have you got an, enough awareness to say, right, well, you know, I'm feeling like a blister's happening on my foot. I'm going to stop and deal with that now, or I need to eat now, or I need to sleep now, or I need to do X, Y, and Z. And when you're in like minus 40 in, you know, <laughs> in the, in, you know, the, the Alaskan stuff, obviously it makes that all that sort of stuff much, much harder, but that's, that's part of the test, you know? Um, and and that's kind of what what a, a sort of attracts um, attracts me to that because you know again like you can't really experience that or you can't really you know um, test yourself unless you're kind of thrown in at the deep end a little bit and that's kind of I suppose that's that's part of uh, why I do it and, and what, what attracts me to it. I suppose the number of athletes taking part in this is is quite small. Is there a bit of yeah. camaraderie between those of you that are within that circle of ultra endurance? Is there a bit of support out there, or is it every man or woman for themselves? Oh, no, I mean, like that particular race now, like because, like I was saying, there's not a whole lot of input from the organization in terms of like gear or like GPS tracks or stuff like that. It's kind of like you're kind of left to yourself that we had a lot of community on a Facebook group and like a lot of people went back again for a second, third time. So they had a lot of experience. So there was a lot of, you know, camaraderie there in in terms of like helping people out, you know. And then obviously the race, uh, this particular race, I started off in the lead and the guy who won it the year before, um, caught up with me pretty quick on he i knew he was quick and we were together and we ended up we ended up staying together for half the race now he ended up dropping out because he he hurt his achilles but like we were working together you know what i mean because like there'd been a lot of fresh snow and like we had to break trail through the through the on the trail and we were wearing snowshoes so we had had to work together and it was in both of our um it would would help both of us you know so there was a lot there was definitely camaraderie there unfortunately he had to he had to drop out with an achilles injury as I said, but, um, you know, I ended up going on on my own then after that. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely, uh, you know, it's such a small circle of people. I think there was 20 people on foot and a lot more people on bike and then a couple of people on ski that did this particular race, you know. But, yeah, it's a small it's a small world, you know, and you'll, you'll definitely run into the same people if you do more and more of these races. And then, Gavin, in terms of managing your nutrition, I presume you have to carry everything uh, with you for this race, that there aren't, like, pit stops along the way. I presume there's checkpoints that you have to check yeah, in with. Yeah, there's but- checkpoints with, with some food. Food, um, but yeah, you're carrying a lot of it with you, and then they have drop bags on the way, so you, you can yes, you, you pack a drop bag before the start, and that gets sent on to a couple of checkpoints. So yeah, you're bringing um, you know sort of some freeze dried meals and stuff, and then you'll have like you could have a I brought two um, flasks of hot water that I fill up in the checkpoints, so I could I could uh, pour that in and have a proper meal, and then the rest of the time I'm eating um, a lot of uh, you know just snack snack food like protein bars and like sweets and stuff like that but obviously in the cold like stuff like something like a, a cliff bar or any of those like if you don't break it up into small little pieces they'll just freeze into a solid block and you'll break your teeth in them so you got to think about things like that that won't uh you know uh, turn into complete stones <laughs> so yeah you, you 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 know you have to uh you know uh, look after that sort of stuff but yeah i didn't i wasn't i'm never i'm not quite um very pinpoint on my nutrition when i first started doing a lot of these endurance events i sort of was um you know, oh, I have to get, because I'm burning, like, say, up to, like, 10,000 calories a day, I need to get, like, at least six into me, and, like, 6,000 calories is a ridiculous amount of food, like, so, it, you, you know, it turns into an eating competition then, <laughs> more so than a race. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I kind of, I kind of, uh, I'm always in a deficit, that's just the bottom line, and I've learned to operate in a deficit, so a lot of my training, like, I do a lot of fasted runs and stuff like that, so I'd kind of be a, a pretty decent fat burner, um, and then, like, I'll fuel up like a lot at like a checkpoint if i get there i can get a couple of meals um but a lot of the time like i'm um you know sort of not really too fussed and also 
I'm not really in, like I'm operating in zone two, so I'm in a low heart rate stuff. Like oh, my heart rate won't, won't be going above 140. I'm not really tapping into a lot of glycogen stores, you know, like I'm not in, in tempo. So like I'm not really, um, you know, I still need to get a lot of calories into me, but I don't, you know, I'm not like needing to do that sort of 100 calories every every hour or whatever. You know, I'm not really that strict about it, you know, so. But what about sweating, Gavin? Because I imagine you're sweating within all the kit that you have. So in terms of, yeah. you know, keeping your kit dry, but also uh, staying hydrated, it must be difficult yeah so it's tough in, in cold weather because um it's you, you you can still sweat obviously and but you don't feel it like and then you can still get dehydrated but it, it's hard to drink because obviously it's cold it's different when you're in summer warm and so you really have to keep on top of that uh, hydration stuff um because actually it's one of the precursors for for frostbite is being dehydrated so um, I, I had um, like obviously then you think about like in minus 40 like everything's going to freeze you know so I had a like a Salomon uh, running vest, I wear that underneath my base layer, and I had a two-liter bladder in that, and then I had a like a hose coming underneath my arm. I had that doubly insulated with like pipe lagging and like neoprene, and then I'd you know I'd be able to drink that, and uh, you know you drink out of the the hose, and you have to blow back in to blow the the fluid back. There's a chance that it could easily freeze, so you have to keep remember to do that. You got to get into the habit of take a drink out of it and then blow back in to get the fluid out of the the hose and back into the, the bladder. You know, um. So yeah, I'd, I'd have that, and then I'd have a, as I mentioned earlier, have those flasks. I keep keep um keep topped up as well. You know, so I'd have I was able to carry like probably close to five liters actually altogether. And then, as you said about the sweating, then like if you start running or you're you know pushing it a bit and you've got extra layers on, then you can start getting wet underneath, and then you can stop. And then if it gets if it's like minus forty, like it was a lot of the time, you know that'll freeze, and then you're in big trouble. So you got to really manage the layering system. Um, so pit zips in my main jacket, and um, you know I'd open it up if I was getting a bit too warm, and and then same thing, add a, add an extra layer if, if if it's getting a bit colder at nighttime and stuff like that. So you're constantly having to sort of uh, you know, tweak, tweak layers and stuff like that to try and stay on top of that. So yeah, like it's, it, it, a lot of that stuff is, is tricky because yeah, it's easy to zone out and sort of, you know, just spimble along and stuff. But yeah, you got to kind of be hyper aware of, of little things like that you need to manage all the time so um that yeah again like that's you know part of the part of the challenge yeah. when you crossed the finish line did you know you had won the race i knew i was in the lead like so like throughout the race as, as i mentioned before i was with this other guy and we got to like the middle section of the race and he had to drop out because of his um his achilles so i kind of went on then ahead and there was another guy kind of not too far behind me but i extended my lead so I knew I was in the lead towards the end, but um, the last checkpoint was like 50k from the end, and and I was really, really kind of on the edge there in terms of sleep deprivation. Like when I first uh, planned the whole race and sort of thought like, what, how fast could I do it? And I thought I could do it in about five days, but I mean, it was all, it's all that was all dependent on the trail condition. Like the trail, like if it's cold and uh, it's not been snow, and the trail is hard and easier to move on. But we had a lot of snow this year, so we weren't snowshoes a lot of it, so it just slowed everything down. So I was kind of operating on the amount of sleep that I thought would have taken me to do it in five days, whereas I was six and a half. So my, the last day was really tough. I had a couple of hours sleep in the last checkpoint and I got up at like early in the morning. It was like close. I left at like seven or eight in the morning and it was going to take me, I knew it was going to take me a good 18 hours to get to finish the last 50K. Basically, you run on fumes at that stage. And the last few hours were absolutely excruciating because I it had gotten dark and I was really, really fighting the, the sleep monsters at that stage. I was just, I was like literally falling asleep on my feet, you know, and I was having to like get snow and rub it in my face to try and keep myself awake. And like I was seeing all sorts, the hallucinations at this stage were so uncontrollable. Usually like I'm walking along and I could see, like I look, I see a, a, a tree with, you know, like a little kind of almost like Christmas tree sort of size with snow in it. And I'd look at it and I think that looks like a, 
looks like a, a cowboy with the machine gun or something, you know, and then I'd look at it and it would eventually turn back into a tree, you know, as I came along. And that was all fine. But then when I was coming to the end, I kept seeing people like I kept seeing people walking around and stuff like that. And I knew I was approaching the end. My mind was obviously thinking like I'm approaching civilization, but I wasn't. I was just approaching this little village in the middle of Alaska, like 25k out. There wasn't like people you know, walking around in parks and coming out of the driveways and stuff. It was just a bunch of trees and snow in them. So I just had to look down at my feet and just stare at my feet and just keep my head down. And, and every time I looked up, I just keep seeing them. It's out of control. But anyways, I, I, I was very, very close to the end and I started to get quite like paranoid and like kind of, I don't know, like I had this like weird delirium going on. And what it was, what was driving it was, there was a guy two years previously who'd done the race and it was his first time doing the race, like that particular race, like it was for me. And he was in the lead like I was, and he had very little sleep like I did. And he had got to the, around the same point and he'd unhitched his sled and wandered off into the trees. And uh, a while later, they saw his tracker and hadn't moved. And they were concerned like what was going on because they knew he was moving quickly and he was about to win the race. So they got some guys to go out in a snowmobile and see what was happening. And they found him like just kind of wandering around the forest, like in this sleep deprived delirium. I didn't know where he was or what he was doing. Now, luckily, it hadn't been that cold or he, he probably would have, you know, you know, lost fingers or, or toes, you know, because of the frostbite. So he had like that was his race over, like, you know, on the very last hurdle. And I, and I, of course, I was, this was going through my head that this was happening to me. And I was really paranoid. I was like, they can all see my tracker now. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, they, they're going to come and get me any minute. And they're going to like, you know, tell me my race is over and all this. And I was just like, had this crazy craziness going on. Um, of course it couldn't have been further from the street like nobody was watching the tracker it was like the middle of the night and I was just moving along anyway and I got to the finish line and uh, it was just it's somebody's house you know but everyone there's a few people that finished ahead of me on bikes and stuff but there was one volunteer that came out to meet me so I wandered up this lonely road in the middle of Alaska you know and there's this one girl uh, who came out to meet me and it was quite funny because um, my mum and this other woman Claire from uh, who lives in Alaska she's from um, uh, West Cork they had gotten in touch with her and they were like, oh, we forgot to give him a flag. Can you make like an Irish flag? So she made this like, she printed off a bunch of paper and she made this little Irish flag out. So she was like, she stood outside this house at three o'clock in the morning, you know, in this little village in Alaska, like waving this flag. And she, you know, I was just like absolutely, obviously delighted to make it to the end. And she got a few photos of me there. So it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty special. Yeah. Because finishing an ultra endurance race like that is not like finishing a mass participation Ironman marathon or big cycle event. There is no fanfare. It's no. literally just you and might even be like a stake in the ground uh, to say you've finished yeah. and somebody that will confirm that you're alive crossing the finish line. Yeah, exactly. It was just a case of like, um, yeah, like mum and everyone at home watching the tracker, you know, and then, uh, yeah, <laughs> me arriving into this house in the middle in this village in Alaska so but don't do it for the fanfare you know I'm, I'm, I'm doing it for for myself you know what I mean and uh, you know this it's, I'm not I'm not interested in that sort of stuff like I I'm just happy that I you know had that experience on my own out there for six and a half days and, and that was incredibly rewarding and you know, it was, uh, it was amazing to, to, to make this finish. Gavin, you mentioned there that the other athlete uh, ditched his sled, but what weight is the sled that you're carrying or that you're dragging through the snow with you? It must be very difficult to actually physically be able to pull that sled behind you. Mine weighed about 20, 25 kilos and it wasn't too bad. Like, it, you know, it slides on the snow. Like I would have done a lot of training in the past, like dragging a tire and stuff like that. Um, but that doesn't really, that's actually tires harder because there's a lot more friction, you know. Um, sled on the snow can run quite well, but again, depends on snow because like we had a lot of snow so it was deeper the snow the harder it is to pull and then obviously going up a hill 
um, it's tougher, you know. And then when you're coming down a hill, <laughs> you kind of have to, the slide can like take you out from behind because if it, if it runs, if it's too steep, it'll run out and catch you. So yeah, it's like, it, it's unbelievably burdensome to have the thing, to be dragging the thing along. But, you know, it's got your, your sort of lifeline in it, your, your bivy and your, your stove and stuff like that. And yeah, it's it's it's, it's not easy, but it becomes part of it, you know, um, and uh, you get used to it. And uh, yeah, it's it's strange once you, take, once you unclip it and you start walking around, you're like, God, it feels so nice just to uh, not be dragging it a bit of a dead weight behind me how was the recovery after the uh, the race uh, my feet were in a bad way so basically I, I pretty good at managing my feet like so I had a second pair of uh, runners in the sled um, they were a half size uh, bigger than my normal pair so my feet will will start to swell naturally after a couple of days and um, I'll change I'll change socks regularly and stuff like that and I have like this spray that I put on my feet before the race to harden the skin up like it's kind of got some methylated spirits and stuff, and stuff like that so hardens the skin up so it kind of makes it blister resistant but you're still going to be kind of struggling you know with it at some stage and towards the end I ended up kind of neglecting my feet a little bit because I just was like let's just get this thing done I don't care what they are so by the time I finished I had quite a few bad blisters on my feet and then I got in to the house in the middle of the night and the volunteer was there and she got me some food and, and I literally just um, fell on the ground and went to sleep like I threw my legs up on this sort of a uh, couch so they were elevated um, and, and slept for a few hours and I woke up then and I was really I'd really puffed out then I, my face was really swollen like everything like just kind of like my body went into shutdown mode you know and I really was struggling to do anything and I could barely walk and everyone was like looking at me like <laughs> you know in the in the place in the house because there was bikers that finished ahead of me obviously because they're on bikes but they they were, didn't finish that far ahead of me like they were you know some of them were, were, were quite close to me I beat a lot of the bikers you know so they, they knew that I'd uh, definitely gone into the red to finish in six and a half days most people finished like the next guy finished a day after me and then most the rest of the 20 people on foot all finished between sort of s- seven and ten days but yeah so I was in a right old state and I had to I knew I was flying out a couple of days later back to Anchorage and then the day after I was flying back to France and like that first 24 hours like I actually couldn't fathom leaving I was like I don't know how I'm going to get it together to to leave but the family that hosts us there in, in McGrath the, the the village were really good um, they just like basically just kept putting food in front of me and just like drink eat you know and I just was like lying on the lying on the couch you know for for the best part of three days and I slowly sort of got it together and, and eventually um got out of there and then uh, yeah the flight back was was, was hard but I had, I had the compression socks on and stuff like that but yeah once I got back it wasn't too bad like I was a couple of weeks of uh you know not doing a whole lot just lying on the couch and stuff like that but when it's locked down that far after that so kind of suited me in one way because I was just in full recovery mode you know with regards to that you know I was just uh, watching a lot of Netflix and eating a lot of food <laughs> so it worked out pretty all right perfect yeah. recovery but talk exactly to me right. about your face swelling and all of that. Where did that come from or, or what was it? Was the body going into so shutdown? It's just, yeah, it's sort of like water retention. Yeah, you just kind of get like uh, inflammation and that's one of the one of the things one of the key things of inflammation is sort of um you know sort of with water retention and uh, that happens a lot especially with your obviously with your feet because your feet are you know not getting not elevated and stuff anytime I slept um, along the way I try and get my legs up you know and I probably should have had compression socks on uh, right from the get go or halfway through you know but um i didn't wear them until afterwards um but yeah it's just it's just part and parcel for me and like, anytime i go on long haul flight like i wouldn't have my feet out and you know i'd always wear the compression socks on a flight and even if i if i took my feet off on a long haul flight now i'd always get like puffy puffy feet you know so it's a similar similar sort of thing you know it's just pooling of blood and, and fluid you know in the, in the lower limbs and and um it's just abuse, John. Like it's, you know what I mean. Like I was uh, pushed it, you know, in regards uh, sleep deprivation and sort of like put my body through through a lot of uh, torture. You know what I mean. So it's just some of the consequences, really. Of all of the events that you've done, Gavin, what has been the highlight of your sporting achievements so far? 
I suppose the row, obviously the rows, like, you know, like the Alaskan events are the cold water stuff is, is, is something I, I've obviously gone back to again and again because it's easy enough to organize, you know, but the row was, was a huge thing, like rowing across the Atlantic solo in the, in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge and, and, you know, doing really well in that and just putting that together, like, was just a massive or, ordeal and also, you know, challenge. Um, so, like, just, you know, to sort of, yeah, go out there and spend 50 days uh, on my own rowing across the Atlantic, you know, it's it pretty special. You know. and, and the logistics would have been massive, but also the fact that you had never rowed before you decided yeah. to row the Atlantic. That was my first rowing race across the Atlantic. I'm, it's a pretty good uh, stat there, you know. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get yourself ready for the row? Uh, well, I had the boat uh, early on, about a year before the, the start of the row. I drove over to the UK, brought it back. So there's a lot of prep there uh, in Galway, you know, uh, out in um, uh, Renville out there. I had the boat out there uh, in, in, in my friend Henry's house. And then I'd be launching it from there and rowing out. I rowed out to the Iron Islands and I did a, I did a row from uh, Kerry up to Galway as well um, at the end of the summer in, in some pretty hairy weather. So there was a lot of prep there. Um, but still, nothing like, you know, the most I spent was two days on the boat, you know, compared to obviously 49 on the ocean. But like rowing around the coast and stuff like that is tricky uh, with the boat. It's, you know, they're not really designed for good steering. Obviously, rowing, you're facing the wrong way. And, uh, you know, the ocean rowing boats are designed to go across an ocean. They're not designed to deal with um, local tides and currents and, and winds and stuff like that. So, yeah, I uh, banged into a few boats out in, <laughs> out in Renville and, you know, had a few hairy moments trying to get the thing in and out of the water, you know, back onto the trailer. So, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely, definitely tricky, the preparation and, and obviously learning everything, like learning to row properly. But it, it turned out actually the, you know, actual like sort of a proper rowing technique isn't really required. You know, like, you know, they, they, the way they feather the blades and stuff like that, like that's all fine and well on flat water. But, row, you know, flat water rowing is flat water rowing. Like the ocean is not flat. You could be out there and you'll have one oar up in the air and the other one buried into the water. So um, it's more kind of, um, you know, sort of a small boat handling, uh, you know, seamanship, you know, mental resilience, you know, sort of all that sort of stuff that becomes more more important than sort of actual good rowing technique, you know, because there was actually one of the races the year before that I did it. They had uh, got a few guys like um, Olympic trials rowers from America and they were hoping to break the, the world record. Um, and one of them had to get rescued after a week because he was violently seasick, you know. So, like I said, you know, you can be the best rower in the world, um, but, it, it, you know, you, you need to be you need to be pretty pretty good at your uh, seamanship skills, really, to survive out there. In terms of being alone and being on your own for that length of time, Gavin, a lot of us would go a bit crazy. You know, there's a lot yeah. of people cocooning here in Ireland who are having very little yeah. and across the world that are having very little interaction other than Zoom calls, Skype calls, whatever they're doing. They're not seeing their families, you know, in an enforced situation. But you chose to go out and, and do all these or choose to go out and do all of these events on your own. Do you enjoy the time alone and what goes through your mind? Yeah, like, you know, uh, before the Atlantic, yeah, the longest I'd been on my own was probably a couple of weeks, which is still a long time, obviously, when I did, uh, when I crossed Lake Baikal and Siberia. But yeah, going across the Atlantic, obviously, is a huge step up and like, it's just, you can't be further away from people. Like I was, you know, I, me- I remember one particular night when I was out there and the, you know, the uh, US, the space station went by, you know, at one stage and that was like, they're the closest people to me, you know, I was like, you know, that was the reality. I was that far from, you know, because all the other boats were massively spread out and yeah, so it's, it's a huge challenge, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think the tricky thing with, with the, with COVID and the pandemic at the moment 
and like I've been, you know, asked about it a few times, obviously, because like on my job, I'm I face extreme isolation as well. I live inside a chamber for 28 days as a saturation diver, which we can talk more about. But like obviously, I'm on my own for those 14 days. I didn't see another human for 14 days. But I had like a lot of purpose then, you know, like I was like, right, I've got a mission here. I've got to get to the other side, you know, and I've got to um, uh, um, piece it all together and do my own and, and manage myself and blah, blah, blah. But like, obviously with this, it's enforced, like you said, it's a lot, you know, and I, and I struggled personally, you know what I mean? I'd be, be the first to put my hand up, um, you know, and that's the reality. Everyone everyone does, you know, and, and you know, and, and it's very hard because like we're, we're all being told, like all we have to do is stay home and watch Netflix, which, you know, is fine for a weekend, you know, or, or, or a day. But to do that for indefinitely is tough, you know, and um, to do that for a long time and, 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 and to kind of be a little bit without purpose you know so it's important obviously to have something to do you know so you know whether that's a small goal of learning french which i didn't do a whole lot of um, when i was in chamonix but i, I luckily like i was saying earlier i had zwifts so i was getting into the zwift racing and, and punishing myself on there so that was a lot of fun but yeah like i i i suppose i dealt with it in the same way that i dealt with throwing the atlantic in that i you know i kind of you know just knew i had to get through it i had no choice really you know and that's the, the bottom line like in was a lot of uncertainty there like in the same way with this you know you, like when i started off around the atlantic i had 90 days of food so like you know people were saying to me oh when are you going to get to the other side and i was like i have no idea like it could take me uh, if it was a good good weather and you know things went really well it could have taken me you know uh, 30 something days you know 35 days but and it could have taken me 100 days you know i could have gone beyond 90. so who knows you know i could have been out there a lot uh, a lot longer or a lot a lot shorter so it's just dealing with day to day it was like what could i control and i could control getting into the seat and rowing you know my shift of two hours and then having my food and, and not going beyond that you know and trying to keep the mind and the body in the same place you know and not trying not to go bigger picture with everything and, and wondering what, what what will happen at the end and blah 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 it was just about managing the, the controllables in the here and now and managing myself you know right down into the micro level you know whether it was like right what am i doing for the next hour i'm sitting here and i'm rowing you know um and then i'll stop and i'll have a break and you know what i mean not even thinking beyond that six hours later you know so it's just a you know a constant challenge of that and i suppose it's the same for for people in this lockdown you know and people are cocooning and stuff like that it's that you know it's sort of like just to sort of focus in on on a day at a time and and, and an hour at a time a moment at a time you know um, and deal with it that way I think that's very uh, very sound advice really there Gav because you know you're talking about having a purpose and for a lot of us we don't have a purpose now because we're we've lost our jobs or we've been furloughed or we don't have a goal we don't have a training goal or a racing goal but actually finding a small purpose in every day and controlling what we can do every day is very important to us mm. um, but you also mentioned resilience Gavin and I think that you've shown over what you've come through as a child and a teenager and and gone through in your sporting success and also through your career which we've barely touched on a, a huge amount of resilience yeah i mean it's funny i got i got asked about it a lot because you know it's obviously there's um you know rowing the atlantic and doing these events like you know it would be seen as something that you know you need a lot of resilience to do and stuff like that and for me i think that you know i don't think resilience is exclusive to somebody who does like something really really tough you know i think everybody has it you know within themselves you know it's just you need to recognize it you know um and that's you know it's really hard like there's a lot of like this sort of narrative of oh you know like you know our grandfathers went to war and you know nowadays kids don't know about anything and blah 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 you know and all that's like just hammering people down a bit you know and i think like everybody is resilient and they can be resilient if they put themselves to do something if they put themselves in the deep end you will surprise yourself and that's what i tend to do with my challenges that are like i've forced that resilience out of myself basically 
by getting into these situations where you're like uh, out around the Atlantic or doing whatever. And I mean, I know we can't do a whole lot of that now being in lockdown and stuff like that, but, you know, we can definitely plan to do stuff when we get out of it and, you know, sort of definitely test that sort of strength within because I think everybody, everybody has it. And, and important to say that the, the strength within, because a lot of us now have to show that resilience uh, for our families and for our friends and, and for ourselves as well. Um, but we have to begin with ourselves. That's the big thing. And I suppose having come through what you've come through with the, the attempted suicide and things like that, that strength from within must drive you forward in terms of motivation and your passion for adventure is very, very evident. Yeah. Um, when I was preparing for the Atlantic, I, I bought the boat myself and uh, I basically quit my job. I told them I wasn't coming back because I'm preparing for this. So I was kind of like, there was a lot of uncertainties and um, didn't get the like massive paycheck of sponsorships that I was hoping to get. A lot of people were just like, you're doing what? I had people afterwards tell me, oh, I wish I'd gotten behind you a bit more, you know. Don't get me wrong, it was definitely, uh, I had a lot of support, but like financially, like I paid for most of it myself, created this huge amount of uncertainty uh, within myself and a lot of questions and stuff. I was listening to like some, I think it was a sports psychology podcast and this guy had said in it, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Quite profound for me, like I'm not the best with like motivational quotes, but this one particular one was really, really good. It really kind of, it made sense to me at the time because I had a lot of doubt, you know, in my mind and a lot of uh, uncertainty and I actually had to write it on my mirror so I, you know staying in uh, God's time and wrote this stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself on the mirror you know because the penny really dropped for me that it like it's that thing of like if you're going to constantly listen to that doubt and you're going to constantly listen to that fear you're not really going to achieve a whole lot you know or you're not going to get get over the line um, and you know we all like it's part of the human condition you know to feel like a fraud you know like a lot of people, like, you know, naturally, like whenever they're in their jobs or they're on the start of a race or whatever, unless you've got a massive ego, like you're feeling like a bit of a fraud. And I think that's inherent with Irish people because we're all like beaten down through generations, you know, we're not like Americans. We struggle with the self-confidence and stuff like that. And, you know, it's that thing of like just uh, quietly speaking to yourself and, and, and telling yourself that, you know, you are going to do this. You know what I mean? Um, and, and you are going to achieve this and you're going to see it through and whatever it is, you know, whatever goal or, or thing you have in mind, you know, so that for me was was a huge part of it, driving driving me forward for the row and, and, and definitely I try and use that going forward, you know. You mentioned Zwift quite a lot, Gavin. Have you picked up any challenges there? Are you going to do a bit of uh, Everesting on Zwift? Uh, I, I, I'm halfway to getting the Tron bike, which is you've got to get 50,000 uh, 50, metres. No, I loved it. I really got into it. it. It was great crack. I did some of the Cycling Ireland races and, 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 and stuff like that. But it absolutely killed me. I nearly, nearly overtrained a little bit, you know, because I've been doing a lot of low intensity stuff. Um, with the ultramarathons and stuff and I haven't been doing a lot of quite like uh, high tempo hard stuff and Zwift racing is uh, is intense you know it's full gas from the start um, you know I got quite into the numbers and stuff for the power meter on, on there and stuff like that I'm actually after going, going out and get myself a proper road bike there recently as well so uh, yeah like it's it's also it's great fun and it's it's, it's great to to have something like that but uh, I mean I understand it's really hard to get the trainers at the moment um i i got mine earlier at the end of last year because i was trying to train because my injuries just manage the volume and do more on the bike as well i i really enjoyed i love i love swift but i'm unfortunately I'm going back to work now and i'm away from the from the kicker so um i won't be on it for another while you know talk to me about work gavin because how do you you probably don't do any um exercise in the capsule unless you're doing a load of uh, circuit training yourself within the yeah. capsule after your shifts explain to people what it is like being in that capsule so 
so far down under sea for so many days? Uh, saturation diving is a weird profession to have. We live inside a chamber for 28 days at a time, so you spend all that time in a small space and not able to get out, um, and you're um, under pressure. So basically it means you're breathing a different uh, gas mixture, um, and then you go from the from the actual living chamber inside the boat to a diving bell, and you go down to the bottom and you go out and go to work. So it's quite it's quite a small small space in there. Um, and I get to do like, yeah, burpees and, and, and um, you know, sort of uh, body weight stuff. And I think this next, I think we're after getting a proper little exercise bike in there. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a watt bike or anything, but be able to do a bit of spinning for the legs. Um, the other problem is really that we breathe a different gas mixture. So we were actually making less red blood cells. So it's like the, kind of like the opposite, obviously, to altitude. So that when we come out, it's like, home, even though we're at sea level, it's like, it's like going to altitude in terms of um, your red blood cell count. So it's it's frustrating um for me because like for example like i've been on zwift there and i you know got my ftp up and you know um was you know doing some few races and stuff like that and got my numbers and you know my running is quite good at the moment obviously after the last few months um but that's all going to go in the drain now um as soon as i go back a chamber like i'll still retain a little bit of strength and stuff like that but i'll lose a lot of that cardiovascular fitness so um it's just a trade-off for you like you know obviously we get we get paid paid well and i get to go and do all these cool adventures you know um but like it's definitely a trade-off in terms of um you know sort of uh overall like base of fitness but then i get time off to sort of build up again you know so um it's a struggle at that but yeah like i uh, I enjoy it and uh, I enjoy the challenge of it as well and um, I enjoy the work and you know it's something I've been doing now for 15 years and um, sort of got a, a bit of a name for myself in that so um, yeah it's uh, it's not too bad but it's yeah, as I said it's definitely not a, a normal nine to five by any stretch of the imagination. Speaking of when you come back out of the chamber and back from uh, work when this stint finishes what are on the cards for the end of 2020 maybe racing wise or 2021 have you any plans made or um, are you going to give us a little bit of an insight into what might be going <laughs> well, on Well obviously we'll ha- wait and see what happens with, with stuff like uh, yeah I'll get back to back to Chamonix and, and, and uh, I'll be trail running over there and cycling and uh, paragliding and doing all my usual mountain activities but yeah, I hopefully I'll go back to Alaska next um, February. The so the when you do the Iditarod Trail Invitational 250 mile, you need to do that first, and then you qualify for the thousand mile, which is obviously exponentially more and uh, uh, in distance and time. It's not something that people do very often. I think only 13 people have completed it on foot. So it's a full, it'll be a full, close to 30 days, um, uh, very much unsupported. Like once you go beyond the 300 mile, 350 mile distance, you're kind of in the wilds for days on end, you know. So um, fingers crossed, you know, things uh, calm down with uh, um, COVID. I'm not, I don't have my eggs, all my eggs in one basket. Um, obviously, there's bigger things happening in the world right now than me heading off uh, into the wilds of Alaska. Obviously, delighted with the success of being able to go to Alaska and then, you know, get back in time and, and, and isolate and stuff like that. A lot of people have had cancelled and obviously super frustrating for you know all these summer's events i mean i'm, I'm sure you you could tell a few stories now with the iron man stuff geez yeah so um you know i think everyone's kind of you know tentatively just waiting to see what happens over the next few months so yeah like in the back of my mind yeah i'm gonna you know be focusing on that and training for it but at the same time <laughs> willing to let go of it as well you know because who knows what's gonna happen gavin i want to um ask you a question before we finish up around staying positive and in these times you know we we know that in Ireland we're and, and across the world we're, we're facing a global pandemic and we're doing quite well here in Ireland with it but there's going to be a lot of individuals who aren't going to do quite well with it from the mental side of things and that 
the mental health might be the next big pandemic that will hit Ireland because mm. people are at home, they've lost their jobs. You know, we, we all know the stories and, and there's loads of things going on yeah. for individuals. If somebody is feeling a little bit uh, overwhelmed by everything or maybe a little bit anxious, is there anything that you can encourage them to do to kind of stay on the positive side of mindset rather than spiraling into a negative and I know you were a big supporter of Jigsaw through your Atlantic Row and I'm not looking for professional Mm. answers I suppose from a personal (laughs) perspective because that's not what you do you know from a personal perspective if somebody is listening in to the show today and they're sitting on the turbo or out for a run are they the best things for them to be doing to stay positive or you know how do we keep those demons from the door while we're all at home? (laughs) Yeah I mean it's funny because I think nowadays there's a lot of like, you know, this whole positivity thing. And I've, I've kind of, I've got a kind of obscure view on the whole thing. And like, for me, like, it's not so much about like trying to stay positive because for me, that's kind of forcing it a little bit. The only constant has changed. So, you know, sometimes you're going to feel bad. Sometimes you're going to feel good. And, And the only way I can really properly relate this is like talking about my adventures and obviously my most recent one being in Alaska like I was going out there for you know six and a half days into the unknown you know pushing myself and there's going to be a point in that in that six days when things are going to be bad you know and for me it's about accepting that that's going to happen and that I'm going to be able to ride through that and if I am like going to be like trying to force uh, a whole lot of positivity on myself when I'm in when I'm down in the dumps that's going to take me more energy you know now I realize that like obviously if somebody's down and out in a big way like more times than not more times than, than good like then yeah like there's good maybe there's deeper mental health issues there and that's something that I'm not qualified to talk about but for me personally I realize you know um, as somebody who generally is quite motivated and, and obviously <laughs> likes to go out and do a whole lot of stuff like but I have I have down days as well. Like I've I've bad times, you know. And I don't generally try and enforce change too much on myself. And what I do is I just accept that there is a bit of darkness there. And I think that's that's half the battle is that because we're too afraid to face that darkness, we're too afraid to be anxious, we're too afraid to feel fear. And really, it's about acceptance. So if you're having a down day, if you're feeling anxious, you the only way you're going to get through that anxiousness is to actually be in it and experience it. That's where the courage is. Because if you're like one of these people that's like, oh no, I don't dare ever be anxious or be in fear because I've got all this positivity around me. Like that bubble, that's a fake bubble. Sorry to call you out. Like, but if you're, if you're constantly ramming uh, spiritual and positivity quotes down everyone's neck and, and down your own neck and not really facing your darkness and your own demons, it's just a fake life. So for me, it's really about saying, right, I'm going to go through these demons, you know? And like I said, the only constant has changed for me. Like I, I will go through the bad times and I'll come out the other side of it. And that's the reality. For me, it's about not forcing things. It's trying to force a square peg into a round hole. That's the best way of describing it. Just accepting that, yeah, look, I'm going to have a bad day. And like, as I said, I put, I was the first to put my hand up. Like I've, I've struggled through the, the COVID things. I've had, I've had days where, you know, I was hoping to jump on the, the, the turbo and do a whole lot, but I didn't. I ended up watching Netflix on the couch and, you know what I mean? That was just, I just accepted that, you know, and I knew that I'd, I'd regained that again. And I know a lot of people listening to your podcast are people who are generally, uh, you know, people who are into training and fitness and stuff like that. And we don't have, we don't have the problem with, uh, with motivation at the end of the day. Like we have a problem with expecting too much of ourselves and giving ourselves a hard time because we're not doing enough, you know, and forcing ourselves to do more training sessions and more blah, blah, blah. And, you know, not allowing ourselves that downtime or allowing ourselves that time to just be to be out. So, you know, it's a tough one because I suppose that the, the party line is to, you know, just, you know, oh, like, let's all be positive, you know. But when the reality is, like, allow yourself 
to have a down day. Allow yourself to be negative and, and accept that that is there. And you, I think you come out of that a lot quicker when you sort of like not for not force it. You know. I think you make a very valid point in where you say allow yourself to face the fear or face the anxiety and to actually take that day off if you need it. And you don't mm. have to be cleaning the house from top to bottom or having the perfect homeschooling or the perfect turbo session or win the Zwift race. Mm. If you need the day off, then take the day off. Whether that's from your training or from your work or from whatever it is giving you the bit of anxiety and yeah, uh, spot on. yeah and, and getting out in the fresh air I think as well where, where you can get out in the fresh air I'm sure you missed uh, the mountains when you were in lockdown and you could only go within uh, within 1k yeah <laughs> you know there's a, a big change but at least it'll make the settling into being back to work uh, much easier being stuck in the capsule as opposed to being in the chamonix that just relax the lockdown there as of today so I'm missing out on everyone running up this, the side of the mountains but I've been in the UK a few days so I've had a I've had a bit more freedom here because obviously it's not strict and I was able to do run, runs and bikes you know but yeah I'm, I'm it's all good I'm, I'm, I'm alright it's going to work at the moment my last question for you Gavin if there was any race in the world that you could do and win what would it be? oh jeez um, <laughs> uh, if you'd said that to me let's say it during the week I probably would have said the Cycling Ireland Zwift League on Saturday mornings <laughs> did it right there one of the mornings I think I got I think I came in the top 10 in the B category so it wasn't too bad but uh, yeah no I'm pretty pretty impressed by um, some of the, the cyclists at the moment because I have, a, have a, quite a grasp on the the numbers the FTPs and stuff and some of these guys that weigh you know <laughs> 10 kilos less than me putting out 400 watts is pretty uh, pretty impressive I suppose I don't know like I yeah if I could say, I'd say something like Ultra Trail Mont Blanc would be would be dreamed yeah because that's like my local race that's obviously the biggest ultra ultra trail uh, marathon in the world um, I've not I've never ran it but hopefully I run it in the next years I obviously living in Chamonix so that would be a dream to uh, yeah uh, to to win it obviously but even just to run it I'd love to get back and do do some stuff in Ireland I'd love to do some of the Ironman stuff there as well that'd be great you know Put it, put it all together with all the cycling we've been doing, you know. So yeah, hopefully we'll see we'll see about that as well. You'll have to sign up to the Ironman uh, VR challenges now. At least then you can stay inside and get all your bits and pieces done. <laughs> yeah, I see people uh, swimming in skips and all sorts of stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, Stephen Donnelly uh, last week, uh, was it two weeks ago now, uh, did that uh, Ironman challenge at home and then you had uh, Con, Ethan and Aaron yeah. uh, swimming, biking and running in their backyard yesterday. A great, a great job for Pieta House. Well, Gavin, listen, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. A pleasure as always to get to chat to you. I could probably have stayed talking for another five hours, never mind one hour, <laughs> but hopefully we'll get, you, uh, we'll get you on the show again and delve a little bit deeper into some of those uh, aspects of, of racing and training and, and all that you've achieved and and congratulations on, on everything that you've done. I had the, the pleasure and the honour of, of being, I think, one of your very first interviews oh, yeah. back in uh, 2000, <laughs> yeah, 2016. I might have to resurrect that YouTube video and, and put it up. Um, but thank you so much. And please be very safe yeah. when you're working and with all of that you're doing. Oh, well, of course. Thanks, Melinda. Great to talk to you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. And remember to tune in to our live Facebook chats on the Try Talking Sport page on Tuesday and Thursday nights at 8.30pm. Don't forget about those reviews to be with the chance of winning one of our coveted bobble beanie hats or the entry to the Wild Atlantic 500k Summer Virtual Challenge. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe and thanks for tuning in.